0: And a few weeks ago, you saw as we uh, began the new year, we've been looking at a, a series of scriptures based on things that took place in David's life. We've been watching as, as this man, the shepherd king, the warrior poet, was called of God and used of God. And we're seeing some of the things that took place on the early side of his life in the sections that we're in right now. And this morning, we're gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So if you turn there with me, In this portion of Scripture, there's a variety of things that I think are illustrated for us, but one of the big things that's illustrated in 1 Samuel 24 is this idea of the fact that we are set apart for the work of God. And I'm going to show you exactly what I mean by that as we look at the the, uh, portions of Scripture that we're looking at together today. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 24, as we speak of this idea of being set apart for the work of God, this is what it says, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 7 for starters. It says this. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. He came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with, the, with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this portion of Scripture and The opportunity that you give to us to be able to look at it together today. Lord, we're so grateful for the fact that you illustrate deep, important, long-lasting concepts to us, Lord, as we look at a portion of Scripture like this, things that that matter for all eternity, things that, that also matter right here and now. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of your Word together, that you'd speak to us by the power of your Spirit, that you'd help us to understand what we're reading and studying together, that you'd help us to grow in our walk with you, and that you'd help us to be faithful and obedient to you in all matters and in all areas of life. We thank you so much, Lord, for the blessing of being able to gather together to, to worship you right now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in sixth grade, I went shopping with my grandmother and her sister, my great aunt, who was like a bonus grandmother to me. So it was kind of neat. I had a a bonus grandmother. Uh, My Aunt Madge was like my bonus there. And um, in their their later years, as their health was declining and, and their husbands had passed away, they shared a home. And whenever my sisters and I would visit, they would plan all sorts of fun things for us to do. And they had like a whole list of things that, that they would come up with, and we had a blast. It was honestly more enjoyable for us to go there than any amusement park or Disney World or anything you could think of. We always loved going to my, my grandmother and my aunt's home. And a lot of the fun things that we would do included visits to Public Square in downtown wilkes Now, if you're not familiar with Public Square, it's just the, basically the center of that city, the center of that town. And uh, lots of shopping, lots of retail, lots of things like that that existed there at the time. And one afternoon while we were shopping there, we came to a watch counter in one of the stores that featured watches that were very trendy in the mid to late 80s. So picture, you know, go back. Do Do you know what brand I'm even referencing? Swatches. Okay, see, I didn't even have to say it, right? You knew. Swatches. And I wanted one so bad. Isn't it interesting how advertising has such a impact on a young brain, you know. I wanted, I, like like as we get older, like we're not susceptible still to it, right. I still think I want a swatch. It's like in there, right. But I wanted one of those swatches so bad. And we, we walked by one of those counters and, um, and I, I just was looking at them. And if you remember, again, during that time, these were like must-have items. And so my aunt looked at my longing and sad eyes, and she said, do you want one of those? And I said, I would love, I would love one of those. And she said, all right, pick one out. And I thought, awesome, I'm so excited. So I was looking around at all the different designs, and the designs, if you remember, with those things were loud, like these were very loud watches. There was nothing subtle about the watches. And so as I was looking at them, I I started thinking, okay, I want to get something that looks neat, but I don't want to get one that anyone I know already has. I wanna have a unique one. And so I'm looking at all the different ones that they had and all the different designs. And I finally settled on one design that was completely transparent. The watch was completely transparent. The only color to it were the hands on the watch, but everything else was completely transparent. So that meant that you could see the gears, you could see all the other parts, every element of it was transparent. Even the bands on it were see-through bands. And I thought, what a cool idea for a watch. Now, think about the inner workings of a watch with me for just a second. If you've ever seen what it looks like, those gears and how they all work together, you know there's lots of gears, lots of intricate parts, and they need to work together if, and it needs to be in harmony, they need to work together properly at the same time if the watch is going to effectively keep time. And obviously, if you remove any one of those parts, even if it's just a small part, the watch is going to immediately stop functioning properly. And I mention that not to talk about watches, and not to talk about brands of watches, but to draw a comparison with how the church is designed to operate. We all, when you look at Scripture, it tells us that we all have an important function, even if we feel like we play a smaller role. So maybe you don't feel like your role is out in front. Maybe you feel like your role is, is in a different spot of how things operate, but we all play an important function, and if any one of us is missing, the entire body is going to be impacted. All believers have been set apart, or I could say anointed, for the work that God wants to accomplish through our lives, and we play a valuable role in the great work that he's doing here on this earth, and it's a real special thing. And when you think about this concept of anointing, or this concept of being anointed, that concept of being anointed for a specific task has been illustrated already several times in the book of 1 Samuel, and we've looked at some of those examples that have already been mentioned. If you remember, early in the book, and we just kind of alluded to this, we didn't go over this in detail, but early in the book, Saul was anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel to serve as Israel's first king. So that happened to Saul. He was anointed, set apart to serve as Israel's first king. And then years later, and we looked at this just a short time ago, a couple weeks ago, David was then anointed by Samuel to replace Saul in that role. But in the years where there was overlap, where David had now been anointed to replace Saul, but Saul was still operating as king, in those overlapping years, What we discover when we look at the scriptures is that Saul was insanely jealous of David, so much so that he devoted a considerable amount of time and considerable amount of focus during that era of his reign toward capturing and attempting to kill David. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to capture him, he wanted to kill him, and that was it. And that's what was taking place in the verses that we just read from the opening of 1 Samuel chapter 24. Basically, ever since David had killed Goliath with just a sling and a stone, He was a person of note in Israel. So if you were living in Israel at the time, David would have operated, in your mind probably, in our minds, like a celebrity. We would have thought of him as a celebrity, a person of note, someone whose name was well known. And many people in Israel were devoted to him and very loyal to him, including hundreds of men who now surrounded him and fought valiantly with him in battle. And they would go into battle. They would fight the enemies of Israel. They would ultimately uh, seek to do what was to the benefit of their people. And Saul, still operating as king, David, David hasn't replaced him yet. Saul, being insecure and being very protective of his power, looked at David and viewed him as a threat to be eliminated, not a man to honor and not a man to cooperate with. Even though it was David's heart to cooperate with Saul... Even though it was in David's heart to to be someone who partnered with Saul in in care of the people of Israel, Saul viewed David as a threat, and he thought, I need to eliminate him. He is a threat to my authority. He's a threat to my power. I don't want to cooperate with him. I want to get rid of him. And Scripture tells us here that Saul took 3,000 men and went after David. He had just finished fighting the Philistines, and now he goes after David, David who has done a lot of good things for Saul. And a lot of good things for the nation of Israel. But Saul takes 3,000 men, goes to pursue him, And in this pursuit, the Scripture tells us that they came upon, Saul came upon a cave. And I'm assuming it was a deep cave. And the Scripture here tells us, and it's kind of interesting how, um, please notice this when you go through Scripture, anyone you're tempted to idolize in Scripture, very frequently the Scripture will give you snapshots of their life that will knock them down a peg so that we're only influenced to worship Jesus and not tempted to idolize any of the other individuals or characters in the Scripture. And so here the Scripture tells us that Saul came upon a deep cave and chose to relieve himself inside that cave where he assumed he would have some privacy. So you could assume that means what you think it means. And providentially, you have David and his men who are also in that cave. Now, I'm thinking... A lot of caves, and I don't know all the details of that cave, but I could guess a couple things. It's probably got some really dark areas. And a lot of times caves have a lot of ambient sound if you have some water running through it or things like that. I'm not picturing a place that's light, and I'm not picturing a place that's, that's really, really quiet. I'm picturing a place that, you know, there's like probably sounds that are kind of blocking out like the sound of movement and, and, and some darkness there. And, and so Saul enters into this cave. David and his men are also in that cave, in the innermost parts of that cave. So it's like a deep cave. And as Saul approached it, it was the belief of David's men that this was the Lord's providence, that, that the Lord was delivering Saul up to David and his men, because David or Saul wanted to kill David. And so the people thought, you know, the men that were with David thought, this is going to be the perfect opportunity to kill Saul and end his murderous pursuit. But one of the things we discover about David is that it was never in David's heart to hurt Saul. And it was never in David's heart to kill Saul. Rather, the scripture here tells us, that he quietly approached Saul in the darkness with those ambient noises probably disguising his movement, and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Cuts off a corner of his robe. And interestingly, I don't know if that would make you feel bad. If someone was trying to kill you and you damaged their garment, do you think you'd feel too bad about it? Be like, nope, I will damage their car, I will damage their house, I will damage their face, right? That would be That would be probably what most of us have in mind to do, but interestingly, when you look at what Scripture tells us, it actually indicates that David felt a little bad about cutting off that corner of Saul's robe, even though he had just spared Saul's life in doing this, he felt a little bit bad about it. The robe of a king was one of the ways in which his authority was usually conveyed. It's very likely that that robe would have been stitched from choice fabrics. And it would have been something that was very uncommon in texture, uncommon in appearance. And instead of cutting Saul down, you have David cutting off that corner piece of material, which later was going to have, very soon, was going to have uh, a very important use because he was going to use it to illustrate that he had mercifully spared Saul's life. He could have cut him down, but instead just took a little snip off his outer garment. And when you look at 1 Samuel 24, verses 5 and 6 and 7, it says this, And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. It's a very interesting event that that takes here in this portion of Scripture. And after Saul leaves the cave, if you continue through uh, this particular chapter, David emerges from the cave, and he calls out to Saul. And David, if if you understand where his heart was at in this moment, he grieved over the malice that Saul had in his heart toward him. He knew that that malice was irrational. And he also did not reciprocate those emotions. David went even so far as to show honor to Saul, even though Saul brought thousands of men into the wilderness to pursue David and attempt to end his life. In fact, when you look at verses 10 and 11 of 1 Samuel 24, it says this, Behold this day, and this is David speaking, he says, Behold this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And so he's like standing outside the cave, he's talking to Saul, he's yelling out to him, and Saul's men are around as well, and he's got that piece of his robe in his hand. He's like, here's the piece of robe, I literally just cut this off your garment. And he says, you see it, you see what I could have done to you. You see that I could have killed you and I didn't do it. He says, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, and notice his statement here, because we're going to visit this a lot. He says, I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, or against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. Isn't that an interesting thing? It's a very interesting occurrence. It takes a lot of self control in a context like that. And you could also see that there's something else working in David's mind and something else working in his heart, because naturally speaking, anyone would have eliminated the threat that was coming against them, especially when you have help. Now, why did David demonstrate this mercy and this respect towards Saul? Why did he do this? Why was this his response? And again, I, I wonder, would we have done the same? I think most people would be pretty eager to eliminate a threat to their life And when you look at David's story, even up to this point, it's very clear that David wasn't weak. He also wasn't afraid at all to end the lives of soldiers from warring nations that were attempting to to hurt the people of Israel. Last week, we spent time looking at how he ran toward Goliath and had no hesitation in uh, burying a rock deep into Goliath's forehead. But when it came to Saul, he couldn't bring himself to hurt him. And I believe that this reluctance can be attributed to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in David's life. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The Spirit of God had come upon David, Scripture says. When he was anointed by Samuel, the Spirit of God came upon him. And the Spirit of God was shaping David's heart. And when the Holy Spirit shapes your heart and my heart and David's heart, what he ends up doing See, so he helps us understand deeper level concepts that need to be spiritually perceived in order to be grasped. And this was something that David was starting to understand, starting to understand some spiritual things that, that can only be grasped spiritually, these deeper, these deeper level concepts. And basically, the Spirit of God was compelling David not to harm someone who had been anointed by the Lord. Even though you could say, you could look at Saul and you could say, well, he was in rebellion against the Lord, and the Lord was about to remove him from power. Even still, he had still been anointed or divinely set apart as king over Israel. And I believe the Spirit of God was indicating to David's heart, don't strike down the Lord's anointed. Now, why would that be something the Spirit of God would indicate to his heart? Don't strike down the Lord's anointed. Well, The concept of bringing harm to the Lord's anointed Or maybe I could even say in the reverse, the concept of bringing no harm to the Lord's anointed, it's spoken elsewhere in God's Word, even though that concept was regularly disregarded by the people of Israel. In fact, they would frequently bring harm against the Lord's anointed. But when we read throughout the the Old Testament, we see examples of people that the Lord divinely appointed for their tasks. So they were anointed for a task or consecrated for a task. We learn of patriarchs, we learn of prophets that God had called out from among the people. You see them all throughout the Old Testament. Years later, David himself even referenced this concept of bringing no harm to the Lord's anointed. Uh, When he sang to the Lord after the Ark of the Covenant was returned back to Jerusalem, you have David singing these words. I'll actually just bring them up for us. It's from 1 Chronicles 16, verse 22. He sings out to the Lord, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. He's basically singing out the same concept that the Lord had impressed upon his heart. And so David's saying, Look, you know, I, I recognize, as the Lord's indicated to me, I'm not supposed to bring harm to his anointed one. Now, I want you to think about this whole concept of anointing because I actually see in our present context, it seems like something that, that I mean, it's a fascinating concept to, to contemplate, but I actually see in our era a lot of people misunderstanding what it means. So I've seen or I've often heard of people describe certain church leaders as anointed. I remember the first time I ever heard that, was in college. I was talking to an older woman, and she described someone's ministry as being an anointed ministry, and I had no idea what she was talking about. She said, oh, oh, she said, he, he's so anointed. His ministry is anointed. And I, I was like, what do you mean, like, if you're saying his ministry is anointed or he is anointed? And I've seen that perspective manipulated, and I've seen it misused. And basically, the way it sometimes gets misused in our present context is you'll have some people in leadership, oftentimes in spiritual leadership, who will attempt to convey, hey, I have been anointed, which is meant to be understood then as I'm above making mistakes or I'm uncommonly holy or I can't be challenged because my ministry has been anointed. And if you challenge anything that I say or do or think or perceive, you're coming against the Lord's anointed. And you know what that's called? That's called spiritual manipulation. And I've seen people do that. It's a uh, a misapplication of this concept of anointment because when you look at what Scripture teaches about those of us living during this era, so since the crucifixion of Jesus, under the new covenant, as Scripture refers to it, believers living under the new covenant are all anointed. Now, under the old covenant, you have certain people anointed or consecrated for certain tasks. Under the new covenant, Scripture teaches, we are all anointed, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we're all anointed with the Holy Spirit the moment we trust in Jesus. We've been baptized by the Spirit, we've been sealed by the Spirit, we've been consecrated for the work that the Lord plans to accomplish through our lives. And Scripture is very clear, and you have the Apostle John making mention of this in the book of 1 John, and I'll read it for us, that all believers have been anointed. He says this in 1 John 2.20, he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Meaning the Holy Spirit, whom we are anointed with, helps us to understand things that can only be spiritually perceived. And that's not just for a super select side group of Christians that are uncommonly holy, It's for every believer in Jesus Christ. Scripture also refers to that as the priesthood of all believers. And in fact, when you look at the earthly ministry of Jesus and some of the things that are illustrated in his ministry, the anointing of the Holy Spirit was demonstrated in Jesus' life when he was set apart, when he was consecrated for his mission. At the time of his baptism, and we could see this in Luke chapter 3, we're told this, We're told the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Wouldn't that have been a fascinating thing to see and experience and hear, and to be in a context like that? This voice, the voice of the Father coming from heaven, saying of Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form at his baptism. Multiple accounts are also given, when you read throughout the Gospels, of, uh, of Jesus being anointed with oil in preparation for his death and burial. And when this was done, it was also done to acknowledge his authority as the Messiah, as the King. So you remember, how was David set apart for the task of becoming the future king. How was Saul set apart? They were anointed with oil. Well, Christ was anointed with oil very much, I mean, you could say in a different way, but very much with the same message being conveyed that he's Messiah in his case, that he's the coming king. In John chapter 12, you know, I don't have a slide for this, so let me bring that back. In John chapter 12, I'll just read this for us. Starting in verse 3, it says this, "'Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment "'made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus "'and wiped his feet with her hair.'" And it says, "'The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. "'But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, "'he who was about to betray him, said, "'Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii "'and given to the poor?' He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus Christ is God's anointed Messiah. In fact, the word Messiah, do you know what it means? means anointed one. That derives directly from the Hebrew word for anointed. The word Christ, which we typically use, that comes from the Greek word Christos, which also means, take a guess, anointed one. So Christ is, is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. The anointed one. He's anointed. It's my belief that when David... Coming back to 1 Samuel 24, when David expressed reluctance to raise his hand in aggression against the Lord's anointed, because so that's what he says his reason is. He says, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. When he said that, what he was doing, I believe he was demonstrating the internal witness of the Holy Spirit who was guiding and directing his thoughts and his actions, I think David, you know, if you talk to him about it in that moment, he probably wouldn't have been able to fully articulate the full theological significance of his reluctance to strike Saul, but I believe it can be said that his respect for the Lord's anointed was actually a form of respect for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you could see what the Holy Spirit put upon his heart, the concept of not striking the Lord's anointed. When I think about the broader application of a portion of Scripture like 1 Samuel chapter 24... Makes me think about the anointed ministry of Jesus. Makes me also think about the work we've been anointed to do in his name. It also makes me think about the respect we, we ha- um, that we have the opportunity to show him in the process of taking steps of obedience that he calls us to take. Now, some of you know that I really, really enjoy history, and I happen to know that I'm not the only one in this congregation that enjoys history. So those of you that did not come for a history lesson today, too bad, because I have a brief one for you. King Henry III of Bavaria, a name you didn't expect me to bring up today. He, he, uh, he served and he ruled in the 11th century. And uh, he actually, I don't know if you've ever thought, boy, wouldn't it be great to be king? Or maybe in our context, do you ever think, boy, wouldn't it be great to be president? I used to think it'd be great to be president. Now as my life has gone on and I've watched him, I'm like, feels like that would be miserable to be president, right? But he actually grew very tired of being king. He just kind of grew sick of it. He grew tired of the pressures and the stress and the, the lifestyle and all that. He was like, I, I, this is not for me. I don't want to be a monarch anymore. And uh, King Henry III of Bavaria, back in the 11th century, decided, I'm going to quit. And I'm going to become a monk. And that's what he decided to do. So he actually made application to a monastery. He reached out to a man. His name was Prior Richard. He served and led the local monastery. And he basically asked to be accepted as a monk in that context and spend the rest of his life in that monastery. He's like, I just want to, I want to abdicate my throne. I want to live as a monk. I want to be there. And the conversation between them is quoted as going like this Your Majesty, said Prior Richard, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? And that's going to be hard because you've been a king. I understand, said Henry. And he said, The rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. So as Christ leads you, I will be obedient to you. And then Prior Richard looked at him and he said, Okay. And for starters, it's going to start right now. You ready? He said, I'm going to tell you what to do. This will be a test of your obedience. I'm going to tell you what to do. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. And when King Henry died, a statement was written. They said, the king learned to rule by being obedient. The king learned to rule by being obedient. So when we tire of our roles and our responsibilities, I think it helps to remember that God has planted us in a certain place so that we can be a good accountant or a good teacher or a good mother or a good father. I think Christ expects us to be faithful where he puts us. I think our lives are a continuation of the work Jesus inaugurated during the course of his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit has anointed us to be people who obediently serve Christ in various ways. I don't know if you've ever perceived your life that way, but I think that that's biblically accurate to make that statement, that the Holy Spirit has anointed us to obediently serve Christ in various ways. I think the fields we serve in, and I think the manner in which we serve may look drastically different, and sometimes the Lord will change your assignment during the course of your life, and that's totally fine. Because it's all part of a greater plan. I believe that the Lord intentionally places believers in all kinds of areas, doing all sorts of things so that the fragrance of Christ might permeate all kinds of industries and all kinds of vocations. So some of us have been anointed to lead in the church. Some of us have been sent to the local school district. I think others are sent to various offices or retail hubs or restaurants or manufacturing centers. I think a few of us have been sent to be the fragrance of Christ in the halls of government or the streets of law enforcement and emergency services and and hospitals. I think it's all by design. I think it's all on purpose. And I think respect for God's anointing and his anointed servants, I think it can ultimately serve as a form of respect for the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Think, out of our reverence and respect for Jesus, we have the opportunity to joyfully and obediently commit ourselves and fulfill and complete the mission that His Spirit has anointed us to fulfill. I think when David was looking at all this and when he was thinking about this, he thought, it's not in my heart, it's not in my heart to strike out against the Lord's anointed, And I think ultimately, this was something the Spirit of God put in David's heart out of reverence for Christ, even though I don't know that David would have been able to fully articulate that. But I do know that in our context, as men and women who live under the the new covenant, as men and women who live in this era, this side of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, keep in mind that when you live and where you live is not an accident. Keep in mind that your salvation is not an accident. Keep in mind that the ways that the Lord shaped your personality and the doors that he's opened up for you, not an accident. Even the things, you know, scripture talks about this idea of the Lord giving us the desires of our heart. Do you ever look at that and you're like, that's like the best scripture ever. The Lord wants to give me the desires of my heart. You know what you discover over time as you, you walk with the Lord? Not only does he give you the desires of your heart, but before he gives you those desires, he first shapes them. And as our faith matures, what he does is he causes you and me to want the things that he wants for us. So he shapes our heart and then gives us what he shaped us to desire. So I don't know where the Lord's going to call you to serve, but be faithful in whatever he calls you to do. At some point in your life, maybe he'll even change your assignment. Maybe he'll give you something different to do, and he'll make that clear to you if that's the case. But wherever you are right now, I'm grateful to the Lord that you're where you are. I'm grateful to the Lord that he sent you to serve where you serve. I'm grateful that there are believers in all kinds of areas, in all kinds of fields, in all kinds of industries as the fragrance of Christ representing him and demonstrating that they too have been consecrated for the task that the Lord's entrusted to them. And I think it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's mission that more and more and more people— we'll have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's, as it's lived out by display and as it's spoken of from the lips of those who know him. And I'm grateful that the Lord looks at us and he says, I want you to be part of what I'm doing. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? So if he makes you a king, glorify him in your kingdom. If he opens up another door, glorify him wherever he opens up the door. And in the end, remember that as you have the privilege to do so, it's your privilege to honor and glorify Jesus Christ, who's called you unto himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of your word and to think about the things that you reveal to us in it. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you love us. We're grateful for the fact that you give us the privilege to walk with you. We're grateful for the privilege that you're right here with us in this room, and that when you look at our lives, you're looking at at people that you have called unto yourself. You've given us your name, and you've made us new people. We are a new creation in you. Lord, I'm grateful for the fact that we are anointed with your Spirit we are consecrated. We're brought unto you. We're set apart for your use and for your glory. And Lord, we're even grateful that this morning, as we have the privilege to celebrate the baptisms of, of several individuals that are part of our church family here. We're grateful, Lord, for the fact that that we get to see a demonstration of you calling someone unto yourself, even in the midst of that. We thank you for their lives, we thank you for their testimonies, and we thank you that collectively and individually that we have the opportunity to glorify your name in the midst of whatever doors you open up for us. So Lord, thank you for your presence in our lives, thank you for calling us unto yourself, and we pray that we would learn a life of humble obedience to you where your name is glorified in the work that gets accomplished by our hands because we're serving as you've, you've shaped the desires of our hearts, you've shaped our personalities, you've opened up doors for us to walk through. and Then you give us the privilege to glorify your name as we simply rely on you for the power that you supply. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of these things. and We commit ourselves to you now and pray for your power to do what you've called us to do. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.